Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. We want to thank all of our Patreon members with a benefit available for all. Rachel's Weekly Check-Ins. Once a week, you'll find a short audio clip covering anything from what's going on in the world to sharing ideas that I'd like to expand on that I think would be of interest and of help to you. We brought something else fun for our patron tiers. You'll see some stylish tote bags and cool stickers. Share a picture of our merch on your social media and don't forget to tag us. Hello, everybody. We have Ellie on the show today. She was raised a third-generation Christian scientist in Southern California. She left the religion in her late teens and then says she discovered it was a cult in her mid-twenties. Her journey of over 10 years has been undoing the restrictive thinking and the false beliefs imprinted in her since birth and finding out who she is underneath all of it. And she wanted to share it with you. Here is part two of my three-part conversation with Ellie. That brings me to the other thing I mentioned, practitioners. Yeah. That is a career where it's a person who prays for healing of others and they get paid. Apparently not a salary, but they get some kind of payment. I think the clients decide how much they pay. And it's an interesting system. I think it's generally over the telephone. There's um, like a very short training they do. And then they can list their names in like the publications and people can call them for healing. And they talk over the phone sometimes, like a life coach maybe. And the person will share some Bible verses, sign some home verses and give them some thoughts to pray about. And then the client will pray about them and then call back if they need more help. And that can go on for a long time, or it can be brief. They'll call for like emotional struggles too, sometimes worry, stress, decisions. And when people are practitioners, they kind of can become famous and have like a following. People that, you know, have prayed to them or gone to them for healing. And they give lectures. Sometimes they become a lecturer. And then they like really have a following. These are people who like lectures and will go in person to attend lectures. It could be like a big auditorium of people. And so maybe like a somewhat of a Christian science celebrity on some level. There's another job that's a Christian science nurse. That's scary because the nurses don't use medicine. Wow. So interesting. Okay. About the practitioner, first of all, they give lectures about what? Sometimes they talk about healings. Healings are very popular. And I think they kind of talk about just concepts about spirituality, kind of furthering the teachings of Christian science. And um, it's interesting because Christian science don't have pastors or preachers. So maybe in a way, the lecture is a little bit like that, kind of interpreting and adding a little bit to what's in the books. You know, it's hard to say. I don't think I've been to one. It was usually for adults. I've been to part of one and it just goes kind of like boring religious talk. Okay. And so then back to that same idea that if they pray over someone, but the person doesn't get better, then there's some other explanation for that. Yeah. There's always some explanation, like they need to pray harder or they're not doing it the right way or something like that. Okay. So moving on to the nurses. So tell me about them. Okay. From what I understand, there's also a short training to be a Christian science nurse. It involves metaphysical training. 
like how to pray and those kinds of things better. And they're not given any medical training. I think they're taught how to like bandage and just basic like personal care because these are people that are going to be in bed sick they need to like feed them maybe roll them over in bed help them with the toilet you know those kinds of things I don't know what that's called like personal care but not medical version and they'll usually do in-home care for people who are like sick enough that they can't take care of themselves or they'll be in a nursing home Christian science nursing homes are terrifying these are people who are so sick that they need medical care but they're going there and not getting any medical care a lot of elderly people end up there and they usually die there I'm just wondering about the nursing that takes place. Maybe it's that kind of feeling of just being cared for spiritually, but it does sound very upsetting. I mean, just to go to any place where people are just slowly declining and suffering. I've been to one once to visit a family member. The nurse was mean. That bothered me. She was just not a nice person. And she yelled, I guess people aren't supposed to show they're in pain or suffering at all in Christian science. That's discouraged. So if any of them are showing pain or this and that, they would be like, oh, it's not that bad. What are you complaining about? I was like, what? Are you kidding me? And just, I've heard some stories. Well, maybe people should watch these for themselves on YouTube. You want to just look up like Christian science nursing or something like that. And there's a video by a nurse who tells some really awful stories about when she was working in nursing homes. Okay. Oh, it's very upsetting. I think unless there was more that you wanted to say just to help teach us all about some of these things, I guess that have been kind of in the shadows. People don't really know about this. So I'm especially glad that you're talking about it. Is there anything else about that to speak generally about before we talk more about you? Yeah, there's a little bit. Christian science has been big in lobbying, politicians and laws. They are the ones who helped get all of those um, religious treatment exemptions passed. Even in some states, it says specifically Christian science treatment, not just like religious healing or faith healing. The Christian Science Committee on Publications do the lobbying and work on those laws. And the church has had a lot of money in the past, so they were able to do those kinds of things. And so because of that, they've even managed to sometimes get um, Christian Science nursing homes covered under Medi-Cal or Medicare insurance, even though there's no nursing. That is really interesting. I think about all the things that are not covered. Wow. Okay. I'm just wondering, you talked a little bit about how it's been for you and also needing to fill in the blanks uh, with culture around you and dealing with anything, really. I think then also not knowing how systems work, like the medical system, et cetera. I'm wondering if you want to talk more about that and also just addressing yourself emotionally and challenges around that. I spent a lot of time on Google learning things um, by doing them wrong and not understanding and asking questions and um, just had to figure it out on my own. No one in the family goes to doctors, has ever been to doctors. It was a lot of just frustrating situations for years until I figured out how it worked. And I have some friends now who work in medicine and they've explained more things to me about that. Um, I had to learn how to deal with insurance companies, which is not fun. Learn how to describe pain, learn different things, just like a lot of just studying and learning. And um, on my own time, I would say just getting it wrong until I figured it out. And earlier you were talking about taking your kid for a haircut. And I realized, I think most parents would take their kid to the doctor from a young age for like a checkup or something and explain it to the kid. Like, okay, this is what we do. And they're going to stick a thing in your tongue or like poke something in your ear. And it's going to be weird, but you're going to be okay. And like support them. I'm like, oh, I didn't have that. I had to figure it all out. I'm now remembering uh, a teenager I worked with who was raised on a compound basically. 
and had never been in school. And he and his family showed up in my waiting area. I talked about him a little, I think about a year ago on the podcast, just briefly. They showed up in my waiting area. They had gotten hold of a station wagon, an old station wagon, and piled in as many people as they could and left. The leader has since passed, but was still running it from jail. There had been so many crimes committed there. And I was leaving my office one day and turning off the lights and locking things up. And I go to the waiting area and there are about eight or nine people sitting there and all kind of in, you know, mixed matched clothes and looking kind of frightened. And one of them said, is Rachel Bernstein here? And I said, uh, that's me. They said, we just left. It was, it was a group run by a man named Tony Alamo. Some of them had been, you know, child brides and had kids at a very young age. And one of the kids who I believe he was about 14 at the time had never been in a school setting because everyone was homeschooled, but he really wanted to learn how to be out in the world and how to meet people. He was also afraid that if he met a girl who he liked, who showed any interest in him, he was going to have to marry her because that was what he was told. So he was actually nervous about meeting girls because he wasn't ready to get married at 14, which I supported. <laughs> and I remember arranging with the principal of the public school that he was going to be going to, to um, have him come in one day before there were students there and just walk the halls and learn about lockers and listen f- to the bell system to let you know that the period was over and that you're going to have the new period. And what to do when you go into a lunchroom. I mean, there's, this was a big public school. And, you know, I thought, okay, that's taking care of a lot of the details. And then he said, am I allowed to ask any questions? And that was fascinating because it goes back to the story of my son with the haircut. I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't have crossed my mind, but right, of course, he doesn't know how to do that. If he's allowed to do that. And he said, and do I just say it? Do I talk to the teacher privately? What do I do? And I said, oh, you raise your hand. And he said like this, and he just put his hand up. I said, no, that actually means you raise your whole arm and you let the teacher know. It was details, so many details just to help him get acculturated to what was second nature for so many people. And I'm now remembering that story as you're talking just about the doctor and everything else. Wow. It's so amazing that you're doing that for people. That's so beautiful. Oh my gosh. It was very powerful. And I gave him so much credit that he actually showed up on that Monday, the first day of school, and that he had to deal with, you know, being kind of crushed in the hallway, not knowing you have to go with the flow. And it was a big school and follow traffic, basically human traffic. It was fascinating. I was happy I was able to do it, but I realized also still there were only so many things that I could have predicted with him that were going to come up and other things came up as he lived it day by day. And oh, and also if what he turned in wasn't perfect, what would happen to him? Oh my goodness. Those two would be questions for me too in any new situation, just because I know I don't know what's allowed and what isn't. And I know I don't know what's always societally or culturally acceptable in any new situation. It's the weirdest thing. That reminded me about when I was first learning about medicine also, going back to that, that we were taught to be afraid of hearing about it and talking about it. And so when I was younger, I would like try to block out my hearing so I wouldn't hear anyone talking about it, or I would close my eyes if we were watching a film with, in school with anything like someone giving birth or any kind of medication or wounds or something. And, um, you know, I was afraid of all of that. So there was definitely some fear first going to doctors and seeing all the 
machines and like I used to be afraid of blood. If I saw blood, I would like get dizzy and pass out. So that was a nice thing to get over all the blood draws. And I still get like kind of dizzy and nauseous when I see blood, but at least I can get my blood drawn and other things without freaking out. So there was that. A lot of the perspective on it, understanding how the body works. Yeah, that's been a long journey. Right. And I think I would assume also kind of honoring what your body is telling you. Oh, no, we are taught to block out every single physical sensation, like everything. So not being in touch with your body, how do you even know where the pain is or what it feels like? So that's been also a long thing, a long process, even still. It's default for me. Right. And then that causes a delay in addressing things, too. With some people, to the point of not realizing they need to pee, it can be a thing. Oh, interesting. Okay, right. Right. That would make sense because it's a physical sensation and you've learned to ignore them. Okay. So then moving on to the emotional, which I think dovetails into, as you were saying, the brainwashing, how has it been for you just to assess or figure out what you're feeling and also that it's valid or quote unquote normal, whatever that means? What's that been like for you? Just laughing as you say that because it's so bad. Like we were raised without a lot of words for emotions and definitely not negative emotions. They're discouraged. I think in the whole religion and specifically for sure in my family, being angry was not okay. Being sad was not okay. Crying was not okay. And happiness was expected. So we had to put on a you know, a fake face and pretend to be happy all the time. Um, I didn't know how to identify my own emotions or name them for a long time. I think when I first got into therapy, it was something I had to explain to my therapist. I said, I am smart, but I am very slow learner when it comes to emotions. You have to start at the beginning with me. That was a while ago. So it's still a process always. Yeah. I want to just jump in there for a moment because I, you say that you need to tell your therapist, I'm smart, but I haven't learned this. There are a lot of people who are very worried about seeming like they're not on top of their game. They don't have an intellect. They're not smart. They're not capable intellectually. And, and it's just that they weren't given the words to use and they weren't given permission to even talk about something in particular. There's so much going on there that can make people wonder how they're coming across. And you, yeah, a lot of people do feel like they need to give disclaimers. You know, I don't want you to think this about me just because I don't know this. Because there's intellect and and not yet having learned something are not, you know, tied together. It's just that you haven't learned it yet. And so I'm very glad that, you know, you were able to put that into words that can help you kind of feel like now you can begin the process a little bit without having that person see you in a way that's uncomfortable to you. Otherwise, people have no idea. I just look like a typical person. I'm not wearing a, anything specific. You have to say, hey, you're a Hare Krishna, or like, hey, you're um, a Quaker, or I don't know. There's no outward visible signs. So people ex- expect what they expect, which is, you know, typical American, I guess. Actually, in that situation, the therapist did not believe that I couldn't identify emotions because I was smart. So I was like, no, I'm serious about this. <laughs> I'm serious. Um, and then she understood at this point in my life, I'm not really ashamed to admit what I don't know, unless I'm going to get in trouble for it. And I can own that. I'm confident about myself. And in that way, I'm lucky. And I was raised enough in the real world that I know enough about those things that it's not like a huge, huge gap. I mean, like versus 
someone who's raised on a compound or raised completely isolated for society, that's a totally different situation. Oh yeah. But there are still those things. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. And I'm glad that you're at a point where you don't feel like you have to hide the fact that you don't know things. I mean, that's how you learn. My kids and my clients know my wording now where if they ask me something and I say, wow, that's a really interesting question. They know that means I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea, but they can guarantee I'm going to research it and I will know by the next time we talk, you know, or we'll research it together. The way people react to that is tells you a good thing about them. If someone reacts badly, if someone has judgment and other things, you know right away. And it's like, well, okay, that person is like this. And if someone's like curious or kind and understanding, okay, good, I know that too. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, just in talking to you, because I've talked to you before, there are times that you approach an idea almost like you're not sure that it's right or that it's on the mark. And then you say something that is so um, kind of powerful, intellectual, meaningful, but just getting to that point of saying, I don't know, and maybe I shouldn't, or this, I don't know if this is right. The being unsure of yourself, I'm sure it gets built in to the whole experience in not knowing, because if you are talking about feelings and addressing them, you can, you're going into a realm where you're less sure of yourself and maybe sometimes not wanting to take the risk, but I'm glad you do. So then you started a therapeutic process and needed to clarify things for the therapist about what your capabilities are. And then what was that process like? (laughs) Slow and painful. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. I think what's interesting that you mentioned, and then also going back to is um, like being unsure about things in terms of, I'm aware that I was taught to believe what I was told and taught to believe authority. And I always approach new ideas with caution. I want to be sure. I want to like read about it, research it. I want to try it out for myself. I don't just believe it right away. I try not to. So um, in that sense, exploring feelings and things like I had to do a lot of that on my own and just practice, I guess. I think a lot of people feel an emotion and like if they're trying to feel it in their body and then the other way, I'll feel it in my body and try to put words to it. My first emotional language was music, not words. It was like the minor and major keys of classical music and the different dynamics and tones and things. So that was the only way I could really express those feelings. Interesting. You mean you would you would create music or you would play music? I guess create music at first. I didn't really have things to play it with. I played some instruments. We'd listen to classical music, that kind of thing. So I identified those feelings. You know, they you know, if you listen to a song and it's a very like sad song. You can feel it like minor keys and kind of slower notes and things. They they really do have emotions. So I would identify with those. That's fascinating. Right. If something is dissonant and mm, it does leave you with a certain feeling, if it kind of is a beautiful chord, you feel like you can breathe and relax and your shoulders go down and sort of the world feels better. There's a huge connection to emotions. But how interesting that you had to find a way to express your emotions and you did it through music. That's really quite amazing. Just finding another language to use. I think it shows this human need for expression, saying what's true for you. And maybe also hoping that by doing that, you're releasing some of the emotion or that maybe other people will get it from hearing it. I don't know. It definitely was a release. I don't think any, I didn't want anyone else to get it. If they did, I would be in trouble. Oh, you'd be in trouble. Okay. Okay, so it was just for you. But I'm really glad you found that. 
All right. So then with the, the process being slow and painful, just, I guess, as we kind of wrap things up, just to talk about, not just to talk about the brainwashing, because it's a huge, huge subject, but you know, when people start to talk about their experiences, they will sometimes have it be really crystallized about how they were controlled and that they came to believe certain things or that they have certain phrases still in their head or certain things that they're supposed to feel about themselves. So you probably had to explore that. had to make your way through that maze when you were talking to a therapist. And so I'm wondering what you realized about the amount of control and brainwashing. That is all true, what you said. The phrases and the ways of looking at things and um, fear of talking about anything that's wrong or negative and fear of disclosing secrets. That was a big, big problem going to therapy is that I felt like I would get in trouble for talking about things. And when you say get in trouble, how, what did you picture happening to you? To explain I guess I was always told not to talk about Christian science at school or you know if they're worried about like possible investigation of child abuse or lawsuit or just some kind of attention they don't want on the family. It was almost like um, like a mental barrier to talking about it. And so what happened when you first started talking about it? Did you sort of wait for something bad to happen? Were you living kind of watching, watching yourself, watching your back for a while? Um, I wasn't really afraid something physical bad would happen. It just felt like in my mind, it felt like that was a place I didn't want to go. I had blocked it off and I was afraid what would happen if I talked about it. And I also felt like, like it wasn't safe. And this is the part I can't explain very well, how I felt it wouldn't be safe to talk about it. I don't know. Maybe that last bit of believing in um, the power of the mind, that like talking about a secret could be harmful to me in some way. I don't even know what way I thought just in some way. Yeah, I just started slowly. I would just say, okay, I was raised in a cult. Anyway, let's talk about something else. Right, but it makes sense when you're saying you have, you have trouble sort of putting it into words. You know, certainly going back to what you were saying at the beginning of our conversation about noticing something and addressing it and talking about it makes it real and maybe makes it worse. And so then, of course, you're going to be worried about doing that. Yeah, I was also afraid that if I went and looked at it and thought about it again, it would take over my brain again. I thought like, oh no, what if it brainwashes me again? What if I like get influenced by those thoughts again? I wanted to make sure I was strong and in a good place and at some distance. These kinds of conversations, I think, are so powerful hearing this kind of detail because I want people who are listening, first of all, people who are former members of different groups, I, of course, want them to feel understood when you get into that level of detail and they, they haven't heard someone else say it, even though they've been feeling it, it feels really good to know that you're not alone. And I think also for people who have loved ones who have been in these situations or have come out of them, to understand all the minutia, the, the details, the things that block someone being able to move forward or make them scared of saying certain things or talking about things in, in any way. And so now to have a sense about so much of the programming in your mind and what it does to prohibit and inhibit and to be able to just move forward with it and say, I'm actually going to need to do this because there's something inside of me that's saying I need to do this and I have to just deal with the anxiety that's coming up. But I guess the only way you find out 
if you're not going to succumb to the thinking again or programming again, is to take this risk. And it's a big risk. So I give you a lot of credit for doing it. I love that you said prohibit and inhibit. That's so good. There's a lot. Most of Christian science is that mental, mental motion, mental brainwashing and programming versus other cults where there, I feel like there's more external focus. So that would be a lot. And so what else, just again, as we're kind of coming to a close, is there something you want people to know about the kind of programming or even what's helped you to undo some of it? Because that's always valuable information. I would say talking to a lot of people with different beliefs and finding out what the possibilities and options are, exploring other beliefs carefully to be sure that I'm not getting brainwashed. And I prefer reading rather than talking to people or going to lectures and things because it's easier to avoid being influenced by reading than other things. I'm not sure why. Something about there's no nonverbals, I guess. I guess when the ideas and thoughts come up, I question it. Is this real? Is this true? Does anyone else think this way? Wait, no, they don't. Okay, it's probably a belief I should look at (laughs) because it's probably from my upbringing. And like maybe what I want, where do I want to go? How do I want to feel? What do I want to be able to do? A lot of trial and error. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I'm sure. And in every setting, probably too, with relationships, with work settings, all of it. And um, talking to other ex-Christian scientists is helpful. There is a Facebook group and um, there's a few websites for general people who have left cults. Mm, Very good. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing so much. And I know there's so much more. because it's as many years of your life. And and so there's always going to be carryover because everyone does that. Everyone carries things from their childhoods, from their DNA, from a lot of places. And you want to be able to look at what is kind of okay and tolerable and what is getting in your way and then address it and do something about it. So I'm really glad that you have taken advantage of the resources out there to help you with this and not feel like you have to kind of figure it out on your own. Yeah, I was afraid for a long time and I was really interested and I was Googling things and then I came across your support group and I'm like, oh, I don't know, what if it's scary? And then it was on remote and I said, okay, that feels kind of safe, you know, I'm like in my own place, there's a computer and so that was a good start. I was very, you know, cautious at the beginning. Do you want to hear how my upbringing was kind of like being trained to be a CIA agent or being in a prisoner of war without the physical torture? dun 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 Wow. Tune in next time. We'll talk about that. And so for people listening, they're going to be able to look forward to that. Yes. You'll get a deep look inside how brainwashing works. Let's do that. Thank you for sharing this. And I know that when something is still impacting you emotionally and not just you, but everyone, it's sometimes hard to put things into words and it's hard to delineate what you want to talk about and how to make sense of it and put it into some sort of order. And so I really appreciate that you took the time to do that and planned to be able to talk about things in a way that would make it easier to understand for the listener so they really can absorb the information. A lot of people have not heard about either Christian science or they they have, they just don't know what it is and they think it's just a place with reading rooms. And that's sort of people's exposure to it to a great degree. Okay, so then to be continued, and I can't wait. And thank you again for today. And I wish you well on this courageous and important journey. Thank you so much, Rachel. I'm so glad to be here. And I've wanted to do this for a long time. So I really appreciate the opportunity. And to everyone else out there, I know it's crazy, but it is possible to get to a better place and it's worth it. 
One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Ellie for continuing her conversation with me. I'm so glad you got to hear part two of our three-part conversation. Ellie talked about the idea that she needed to learn life skills, which is actually a very common thing when people have been in restrictive environments where they were told how to do everything, but not necessarily how to do it within the world outside. And also that you can't be angry or sad or crying and that there's a fear of talking about bad things or telling secrets. One of the things that I want to make sure to go back to that she talked about was this idea that there were practitioners within Christian science, people paid to pray over others, and there were people who went by the title nurse. So what does that mean to be a nurse? within an environment that is against medicine. Well, part of what that means is that there is a co-opting of the term nurse. And so people will think potentially that that person has credentials that they don't have. The other part is it shows there's a redefinition of how to take care of someone who is having a medical issue, that you take care of it without medicine, which I know doesn't seem like it makes sense. Logically, it doesn't, especially when you add in the term nurse. I have an issue, of course, with organizations or with people themselves who do this, who use titles for themselves or use titles for their practitioners, who will talk about being ministers because they were mm, trained by. Scientology or another group to be ministers for that group, and other people who will call themselves therapists who don't have training. The term coach is also problematic. There are a lot of people who call themselves life coaches and work coaches and haven't had any training to be a coach. There are some terms that have legal definitions and guidelines around them, and some that don't. I think it is. A problematic thing, though, when you have people who are using these terms who then aren't necessarily people you can rely on in the same way as the other people who use those terms or those titles. And the problem, of course, I think, that comes to my mind is that when you know that you're with someone who has a particular title, you can feel a little more rest assured that they know what they're doing. And it can slow down your ability or your wish, even your interest, in looking elsewhere for help because you think this person with this title is able to help you. And so one of the other reasons that I have a problem with people calling themselves nurses and other sorts of things is that there is this idea of a mandated reporter There are people within certain areas of specialization, people who are therapists, people who are doctors, people who are nurses, people who are psychiatrists, psychologists, teachers, clergy, many others, who are mandated reporters. People who, when they see that there has been abuse or neglect, that they need to make a report. They need to do what they can to get the agencies 
who need to be informed to be informed so that they can jump in and help, even though those agencies aren't always so helpful, honestly, but still they have sometimes really saved people's lives. And so you could be reporting abuse, not that you would, according to the way Ellie talks about not talking about bad things, but let's say someone did get the courage to report to someone who calls themselves a nurse that they're being abused or they're going through medical neglect, and then the nurse has no obligation to treat you in the way that would be medically prudent to check you out or to report anything to anyone. And so it seems like it all ends there. And I think that that is not right. And it's not responsible. I don't want people to be in a situation where they're trusting the wrong people. And don't fall back on just hearing someone's title. Do your research, as I often say. Find out if they are credentialed or licensed. Find out if they went to school for this. See if you can see their diploma or a copy of their license. See if they have initials after their name. That's not to say that people who don't have licenses or credentials can't be talented at what they do. That's not at all to say that. But if you're going to go ahead and call yourself something, it would be like me calling myself an attorney and I've never been to law school. There's some things you just shouldn't do. And there are things that you don't have the right to call yourself. And so one of the worst feelings is putting yourself in someone else's hands, putting your trust in their hands, and doing ultimately kind of a spiritual or medical trust fall, falling backwards, assuming the person with the title or the credentials or that label will catch you but they're under no obligation to do so. Make sure that the people around you will catch you if you fall. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrinationpodcast and for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.